Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing occupational therapy and the transition to adulthood and employment with our guest, Dr. Andrew Persh. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. My name is Dennis Cleary. I'm a senior researcher and assistant professor at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, and really happy to be joined today by uh, Dr. Annie Persh, who is a, an assistant prof- professor at Colorado State University. And Andy, do you want to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background and how we came to this room today? You bet. Thanks, Dennis. Glad to be here. Uh, my name is Andy Persh. I've been an occupational therapist for 15 years. Uh, started my career in Madison, Wisconsin, working in the public schools uh, with children uh, in special education uh, across all uh, age ranges uh, from three up, up until 21 in the transition to adulthood. And so it, it was working in high schools and, and seeing uh, the transition experience of youth and young adults with disabilities and their families that uh, got me interested in, in research in this area. And so I uh, moved from Madison to Columbus, Ohio in 2011 uh, to start a PhD at The Ohio State University. And uh, I guess that's where our paths really got started together, Dennis. That's right. So uh, we were fortunate enough uh, both to be mentored by Jane K. Smith, who was a leading uh, occupational therapist working with uh, children and adolescents and um, sadly passed away a few years ago, but now uh, her textbook continues to live in her uh, happy memory. So it's uh, Case Smith's Occupational Therapy uh, for Children and Now Adolescents. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about um, what your, your PhD started in and then kind of what brought you to the work that you're doing in today? Yeah, so I, I started with a broad interest in, in pediatrics and, and a bit of a specific interest in transition to adulthood. And um, Jane, who, who is well known in pediatrics, was at a point in her career where the children that she had worked with, say in NICUs, in early intervention, in early childhood and in elementary schools, were becoming uh, young adults. And so uh, those two and three and four year olds who are 22 and 23 and 24. And, and so that was a, a clear and real example for Jane that, um, that despite great therapy uh, early in life, that uh, individuals' needs uh, and were, were changing and evolving over time. And so she really supported us in looking at. Uh, transition age and, and occupational therapy's role in that space. One of the uh, really exciting things that was going on at Ohio State, and it's uh, part of what brought us together, uh, in 2010, uh, you along with Margo Izzo were awarded uh, a TIPSID grant. Those are transition programs for students with intellectual disabilities in higher education. And so uh, that that was the learning environment that I started in uh, in 2011. Tops was just a year old, and we were looking at how do we serve and support youth and young adults with intellectual disabilities on college campuses. Yeah, and I, I think the great thing about Jane is, although she was a researcher, her her hands were always with practitioners and just celebrated 
practitioners and was really about helping to create assessments and intervention that could be really useful for practitioners. And I think we are part of the, the people that are trying to carry on that legacy because um, she was such a pragmatist. And as you said, um, she didn't like the fact that uh, she had done all this work with these kids when they were younger and that their life outcomes um, weren't always uh, that great after they left uh, their high school. Um, so do you want to just talk a little bit about maybe what uh, the trend, the typical pattern would be for occupational therapy, working with uh, school age children, uh, the types of things they're working on, and then sort of uh, maybe um, when they might sometimes graduate from occupational therapy services. Yeah, so occupational therapists work in the public schools under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, uh, serving uh, children age three uh, up until their 22nd birthday or the year that they have their 22nd birthday. And so uh, approximately 18 years of, of special education services and supports. And, and occupational therapists have a role to play uh, along that whole trajectory. Um, and, and so part of the way that I think about this are, are how the roles change over time um, and, and at different grade levels. So uh, school-based OT in includes working with really young children uh, in early childhood, age three to five, working with elementary age children, you know, kindergarten through fifth grade, you know, middle school or junior high, uh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, and then high school age, um, which uh, is typically thought of uh, in, in terms of, you know, freshman through senior year of high school or age, you know, 14 to 18 or, or thereabouts in uh, individuals, children with disabilities, uh, they're eligible for special education up, up until 21 or, or the year uh, that they're turning 22. And so um, high school is often a longer, uh, longer than just four years for students with disabilities. So what occupational therapy does with those clients across the years, I think changes quite a, quite a bit as kids are growing up. Uh, at the young ages, uh, my practice was highly focused on uh, self-care skills, um, you know, ad adaptive skills and, and developing those skills and increasing independence, helping kids with their mealtime or cafeteria routines with their clothing so that they can get you know, uh, in and out of the bathroom on their own or in, you know, out, out to the playground, uh, playground you know, for recess and back and doing those ADLs independently. Um, lots of, of focus on handwriting and fine motor skills. As kids are getting older in elementary age, they're learning to read and write. And so applying that via handwriting is a primary uh, focus of occupational therapy at young ages. I would say also sensory processing and self-regulation. So working with children who have sensory processing disorders or difficulty uh, you know, with executive function or, or, um, or perhaps an emotional behavioral disorder and uh, helping them explore practice and refine strategies that help them maintain their uh, their performance throughout a school day. There are a couple common self-regulation curricula, um, 
how does your engine run or the alert program are pretty common and well known by OTs working in elementary and, and middle schools. Um, and, and so then what we know is that there's a, a preponderance uh, or a majority of uh, children who have received OT who are discharged from OT in the late elementary or middle school years once those say immediate concerns of self-care skills handwriting sensory processing and, and self-regulation once those immediate concerns have been dealt with um and and so what why why do you think that is why why do you think that is kind of usually around the age of 12 13 um, a lot of kids graduate from occupational therapy any ideas why i think it's it's for a number of reasons i think uh uh, and, and reflects the various stakeholders to a child's IEP and, and to provision of academic services. Um, so I think for the most part, occupational therapists like working with younger children than they, than they do working with older children, right? Um, you know, challenging behavior um, can sometimes feel cute and manageable in a five-year-old and in a 12-year-old or an 18-year-old, it, it can be unmanageable and, and sometimes dangerous. Um, and so uh, in my experience, most OTs that are interested in working in, with kids and with in, in the schools or in pediatrics really are interested in, in working with younger kids during the developmental years, right? We know also, right, just about childhood development that um, you know, plasticity is highest in, in those uh, early years, say up till age seven or eight. And so by the time a kid is 12 and 13, things are slowing down a little bit. Uh, you know, the impacts of disability may be coming exaggerated. The gaps between a, a student and their peers can, can start to become greater. Um, and so, so the occupations are, are also changing. Um, and so uh, the occupations of a middle schooler uh, are, you know, self-organization and note-taking and completing homework. Um, and, and those are just very different than the things that we tend to work on with kids at the younger age. Um, and I think that's a challenge for therapists um, and, and is part of why, um, you know, to that language, lots of uh, students who are otherwise eligible tend to be discharged, um, you know, later elementary years. Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcasts. Just head over to occupationaltherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to occupationaltherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with occupationaltherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's occupationaltherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. Great. And we're not great. But um, in terms of uh, 
you know, if these uh, younger students or middle-aged student, middle school students are starting to be discharged, what are, what kind of life outcomes are, do they experience, especially folks with intellectual and developmental disabilities who tend to be the, the individuals that you serve? Yeah, so outcomes are, are something that I'm, I'm very interested in. Um, and, and thinking about a life course, uh, I, I tend to look for data. And so there's data about post-secondary outcomes in the years right after high school. That's available through a, a large study called National Longitudinal Transition Study 2. Uh, it's about 10 years old now, but um, pr- provides a pretty comprehensive snapshot of what post-secondary outcomes look like in the years right after high school. And then, you know, we have to look at other uh, societal or governmental sources for, for what those outcomes look like uh, throughout uh, the rest of life. Um, so in the years immediately after high school, uh, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities um, go on to say post-secondary education, or post-secondary employment at a rate of about 40%. Um, That is uh, much lower than other disability groups, which average about 60% participation and uh, 70% participation in in the population at large. And it's important to note that 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 number is limited. It it doesn't include uh, work that's done by uh, people in the home, right? Uh, mothers and fathers and caregivers that are raising family in the home. So it, a, across the population, it really is close to about 90% that are doing productive enterprise in their daily life. And so the, the population of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities at 40% is uh, much less. Uh, and then what, than what's that. the price? And so in terms of that decreased employment and uh, post-secondary education? Uh, it's a hard number to estimate. Uh, There are a couple data points we can look at. Um, The CDC in the early 2000s, so about 15 years ago now, coming close to 20 years ago, estimated that um, lifetime costs to support a person uh, with an intellectual disability exceeded a million dollars per person per lifetime. And those were the costs of healthcare, direct support services, uh, lost productivity, and tax revenue. So uh, more than a million dollars per person per lifetime. And so, uh, and it's a 20-year-old number. Um, Recently, uh, as there's been more attention paid to to autism and autism that co-occurs with intellectual disability, we've we've had some better estimates. Um, uh, Cost... uh, Lifetime cost for a person with autism, uh, recent estimate was 1.4 million uh, per person per lifetime. And for a person with autism and that co-occurring intellectual disability, the estimate was 2.4 million per person per lifetime. Um, and so while, while we do see some better numbers in the years immediately after high school, the years immediately after that transition to adulthood, those numbers don't usually go up. Unfortunately, they tend to then go down uh, kind of at a slow negative trajectory across a lifespan. So then if we look at 
say, uh, employment of adults with disabilities, um, those numbers uh, unfortunately look look much lower. Um, and if we look at, say, census numbers, um, the American Community Survey, or uh, or VR data, um, I think there's a lot of variance around those estimates, but it, it's probably closer to about five to fifteen percent of the population of people with intellectual disabilities that maintain uh, employment as adults. Uh, and so we're, uh, and, and I'm particularly interested in how do we optimize an employment trajectory so that um, those adulthood outcomes uh, look a bit different. Yeah, and then obviously as occupational therapists, in addition to the financial costs, what are some other costs that, you know, uh, are, you know, that the, the individual that doesn't have a, have a regular set schedule going to work on a regular basis? What are some other things that um, they may pay a price for not having regular employment? Well, I mean, employment is one of those primary occupations and um, the consequences of unemployment or underemployment are substantial and are gonna cross not just the person, uh, their own occupations, but also their support system and structure, right? So there are the socioeconomics, but, um, but health and quality of life, uh, connectedness to family and friends, independence and in using community transportation, all of those things are strongly connected to um, one's employment. And so... Um, and you, for example, met your wife on the job. <laughs> that's right. We did meet uh, on the job. And so that, that socialization, the connection to other humans in the world, uh, is a is an important piece of employment for lots of us. Great. And um, can you talk a little bit about how occupational therapy might be different than other professions that are in the public schools? So teachers, speech language pathologists, PTs, psychologists, ABA practitioners? Well, um, I, I, so I don't know that it's necessarily unique to the schools, but occupational therapy, uh, it, in my um perspective has the broadest scope of practice of, of the professions that, that you've mentioned, education, psychology, PT, speech, you know, et cetera. Um, the domain of concern are, are all of the important human occupations. Um, and within the context of the schools, uh, those are addressed within uh, academic framework, you know, educationally relevant. Um, but as a, as a child grows, occupations change. And, um, and I, I think that that scope, uh, just continues to grow. And, and so there's more potentially that occupational therapists can work on in the schools. And so that's both a, a, a benefit and a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I, one of the a Canadian occupational therapist that um, we've been doing a little bit of work with is, is sort of funny and, and really talks about working with, you know, kind of adolescents specifically and, and really trying to focus on those things that are going to help them, you know, in their life. And if you're working on something that isn't going to help them at 21 or 22 in, you know, I'm older, so I would say um, work, play or self-care, you know, why are we, why are we doing it? And, you know, just to really focus on, on those as priorities. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, supporting the clients we're working with. Yeah, so, um, what, you know, one of the 
things that is happening as a child is growing and, and coming to high school uh, is a bit of a perspective change. Um, inclusion in what's called the least restrictive environment is a key principle of the IDEA. And broadly, that means that children with disabilities um, experience the best outcomes uh, when they're educated uh, alongside children with and without disabilities, right? So that is included in the regular education environment to the greatest extent possible. Um, and, and that is very much targeted at academic and, and social benefits of inclusion, and, and they're substantial. Um, as kids are getting older, it becomes more and more difficult to achieve inclusion in regular education settings. Um, you know, say, for example, by the time someone's getting to uh, middle school social studies, um, if someone with a disability is, um, say, many grade levels below that sixth grade uh, social studies uh, curriculum, what they're doing in the classroom uh, to approximate social studies is, is very different, is markedly different than what most of the kids are doing. Um, and um, so by, by the time kids then get to high school, it's important, kind of to your point, to target in on, on what, what their post-secondary target is. Is it post-secondary education? And if it's education, then staying in classes and getting those classes done is going to be very important, right? Mm -hmm. But not, uh, not all, or probably m most of the students that we're talking about are not going on to secondary, post-secondary education. Mm -hmm. So if post-secondary education isn't the target, what is? Well, uh, there, there are two... Um, special-led metrics called Indicator 13 and Indicator 14, right? Indicator 13 looks at um, IEPs that have transition goals on them. And so districts are responsible for having transition goals on IEPs. Indicator 14 is about where, uh, where students are after high school. You know, what, what is the transition outcome? And, and really it's three uh, areas. It's post-secondary education, post-secondary employment or community participation and living. And so uh, thinking about that uh, middle schooler becoming a high schooler, and while, uh, while we've encouraged inclusion and, and uh, adaptation of a curriculum, by, by the time someone's in ninth, ninth grade, if they're not going to post-secondary education, spending time in that environment might actually be, start becoming a barrier. To, to what their actual target is. Um, and, and so that's a big shift of thinking for parents, for teams. So if they're, they're not in the school, where, where should they be or where are uh, school districts now starting to, to do some of that? Yeah, well, so I don't necessarily mean that they're not in the school, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying that we have, to be, um, we have to be deliberate about where their time is and how they're spending their time because time in special education and, and under an IEP is a finite resource. And so let's maximize that. Um, so I, I think participating in schools in all sorts of settings, in career and tech ed, in specials, in functional academic courses or special education courses, in um, 
in all school assemblies and in the cafeteria, all of those things are good and appropriate. Um, but um, if someone isn't going to be moving towards post-secondary education, uh, then their time might be better spent doing some things preparing for employment or community living. And so that could look like time spent outside of, outside of the school. Uh, perhaps it's transportation training and you know, planning a bus route, using that bus route to go to the store, grocery store, or to a, a mall maybe, you know, doing, uh, you know, buying lunch at that, that destination, um, you know, budgeting your money and making change and um, all of those practical life experiences. Um, another key piece then is actual paid uh, work experience. And so it's probably the strongest predictor. Uh, if, if you're looking to predict post-secondary employment, what's one of the best? Well, it's employment at the secondary level, right? Um, so I started working as a sophomore in high school when I was 15, you know, at a minimum wage job in food service. And uh, those types of experiences are important for people with disabilities as well. And so volunteering, volunteering internships. Yeah. What, any have, so I know there's been some federal legislation that has helped to encourage that. So certainly um, IDEA is, is focusing more on those transition goals and making sure that by the age of 16, uh, at the very least uh, 14 in some states, and actually Florida just took it down to age 11, that they have to have a transition goal. So that's great in terms of, of focusing on life after high school. But um, Workforce Innovation Opportunities Act, uh, pre-employment transition services, and then connection of vocational rehabilitation um, have all been things really in the last seven years or so that really have you know helped to to make a difference in terms of the types of services that students are are receiving. Can you just talk a little bit about those three buzzwords? You bet. Well, um, one of the things I've learned, I think that we learned uh, about. You know, from Project Search, even before you went to Project Search, was of of the power of um, interprofessional and interagency collaboration in supporting a transition outcome. And so, Project Search does a good job in in bringing special ed, VR, DD, and an employer, you know, student, parents, family, all to the table together at the same time. So uh, Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, which passed as an extension of the Rehabilitation Act, uh, so uh, passed in 2014, um, has a, has a few initiatives that are um, in that same direction of facilitating uh, transition planning and that interagency collaboration. And so par part of uh, I think what you're alluding to are called uh, pre-employment transition services or pre-ETS for short. Um, and uh, briefly, uh, that's a responsibility uh, on vocational rehabilitation to use, I believe, 15% of their funding to support uh, students at the high school level. And so... Um, as a contrast to even a decade ago when I was working in, in the public schools, um, right, vocational rehabilitation was, was really more focused on uh, supporting the student after they're done with school. Um, and 
um, having VR at the table, like you said, as soon as people have transition goals at age 14 or 16, I hadn't heard about age 11 in Florida. That's very exciting. Um, there are more opportunities now for that interprofessional interagency collaboration. And so, um, I know, I know people are excited about having VR at the table more and sooner um, during the transition. And I, and I think some, some occupational therapists around the country really see that pre-ETS, the pre-employment transition services, that um, sometimes the school district will invite in a rehabilitation provider from the community like an Easter Seals or a Goodwill. Um, but some school districts actually are, are starting to bill for those services themselves and provides a nice opportunity for occupational therapists potentially to be involved in that either after school or even summer programs for some of those students um, to, to make sure that they're getting access to that. As you said, you know, a, a job uh, at 15, 16 years of age where they can really start um, doing some of those things. And I'll just backtrack for a second. Um, I am a, uh, I work primarily with Project Search, which is a, uh, the largest transition program in the world. We have about 670 sites uh, in 11 countries, uh, including Iceland. We're excited about that, um, but about over 525 programs here in the U.S. that really um, I, I love it as an occupational therapist because it's all real. There's nothing contrived. Uh, an intern comes and is with us uh, in high school for that last year of their high school career um, where they're working at three different internships and then, you know, uh, hopefully at the end of that, um, successfully finding a, a um, competitive integrated uh, job um, that gives them a career for life. So thanks for that shout out for my employer. I appreciate that. Um, so any uh, advice you might have on how occupational therapy practitioners can become more involved in this transition planning and then obviously eventually into transition services. Sure. So yeah, one of the things that we learned when we looked at National Longitudinal Transition Study 2, um, so that it's not a, uh, a survey that was written to look at OT, but there are some variables in there that we can look at. And so we found that uh, of the IEP eligible uh, students with disabilities, um, and in this sample, there were more than uh, 10,000, 11,000 of them, uh, only 7.5% reported receiving occupational therapy or life skills training during high school at all. So it's, it's potentially a seven or eight year window um, occupational therapy or life skills training. And, and of course, life skills training could mean a lot of things. And so the number was only seven and a half percent. And what we take from that is that the vast majority of, of students with disabilities are not receiving occupational therapy services during the high school years, despite their eligibility. So uh, that that's the uphill battle that we've been uh, fighting. Uh, for about the last decade, and it, it really has been encouraging to see um, growth and interest, you know, publication and presentations and conferences. Yeah, and AOTA has a very active um, occupational therapy transition interest group that has, I think, over 150 members. Don't quote me on that, but it has a lot of num There's a lot of people involved in that, so that's good. So, so there is a need and an opportunity for OTs to get more involved in transition. Um, 
the the ways to go about doing that i think are need to be uh many and diverse and and varied um so at the individual level you can advocate with your colleagues and with your supervisors for increased role at say middle school high school levels that's not always easy um you know because so as an employee you have to live and work in in your environment and and in within your employer whether that be a, a school district or a vr provider and so um things don't just happen overnight right and and um in advocating for a role in in transition planning um that that may mean perhaps going against other people and ways of doing things uh, you know, traditional ways of doing things. So I, I think it is a balance of individual in this initiative and, and, you know, needing to live in, uh, live in the world. That said, um, I think there are uh, a few strategies that we've tried to embrace. One is uh, through education, right? So as academic occupational therapists and teaching pediatrics, we add transition content to uh, to what we're teaching. And so one class at a time, more and more OTs are learning about transition. Um, another one is through research and we have uh, research projects and, and then disseminate the results of those projects to increase awareness, discussion. Um, and so those are, those are longer plays. In the short term, um, I think that, that there are, maybe two really practical things that OTs can do to, to grow transition. Uh, one, uh, and, and Dennis, this is an idea uh, of yours, is uh, an OT referral um, at, at the point of any discharge. Um, and, and so- Are you talking about RSVP at 16? Yeah, so, um, you know, using, say, the transition from birth to three into the public schools as the first example of a life transition, moving from early intervention to special education, new people, new faces, new buildings, using that transition as an example and saying and talking to parents and, and kids as they get older about as you grow and as your needs change, here are, here are some things and ideas uh, of, of where occupational therapy can help you, right? Um, and it's great when we can have an impact on self-care skills and handwriting and sensory skills early on. That's great. But there are other needs down the line. And I think being explicit with children and families about that and that it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to raise your hand again and ask for a new OT evaluation down the line. Um, and then uh, the, the other thing that comes to mind is advocacy through the law um, of when you encounter roadblocks uh, in, in, a, in the special education process and transition planning, using the law to your benefit. Um, and one of the keys that I would point therapists and families to is the first word of, the, of IDEA, right? It's Individuals with Disabilities education act individualized education program and so that that means that um 
it's specifically tailored to the student with disabilities. And, and that's the, the guiding principle. This student and what is their target? What is their post-secondary target? Yeah, I, I like to, when I'm talking to groups of OTs, um, I, I like to talk about the, the PEO model. So the person environment occupation, and you think about, you know, a, a you know, a 16 year old that, or 12 year old, whenever they're discharged, that's, you know, maybe in a, a typical education classroom where they're being um, mainstreamed into that. Um, but when we're starting to look at them at 16, 17, 18, you know, the, the person at 16, 17, 18 is very different at 12. Uh, the environment, especially if we're looking at more community-based types of experiences is going to be different. And then the occupations, you know, especially if they're doing some type of employment training. So the P, the E, and the O are all different. So in some ways, let's let's take a, a, a closer look again there and at the very least do some screening uh, and ideally involve this, the, the student and their family member uh, in that process so that they they know that, you know, because the other thing in terms of, of dealing with families, the only person that's going to be at every IEP in that child's life is the child and, and their parent or family member that's going to be with them, you know, throughout the entire course of their, of their education. Um, so uh, in terms of that, and uh, looking at um, kind of assessments and intervention, can you talk a little bit about the work you're doing uh, and maybe some other OTs are doing on the research end of things so that we have uh, really good evidence-based assessment and intervention? Sure. I, I like your, uh, your thought there on, on the person environment occupation and how much all of those are changing, say, even just in a five-year period between middle school, high school, you know, 12-year-old sure. to 17-year-old. How much is that person environment and the occupations changing? Um, so given that amount of change, I'm, I think assessment is very important and, and database decision-making is very important. Um, that, so that's one of the areas we've focused, um, you know, in, in a changing space, let's, let's evaluate and make some decisions using uh, data. Um, so what assessments? Well, first I think in multiple assessments, right? Don't make your decision based on just one data point. Um, but so I, I look for multiple domains uh, and, and multiple assessments. Some of the things that come to mind uh, would be a, a tool that, while well, you and I created called vocational fit assessment. We did. Um, which is a job matching tool, a person environment occupation job matching tool where we assess a person's abilities and uh, the demands of a job and we can look we can quantify the fit between uh, demands and abilities uh, so that's a pretty cool tool and is, is a nice one for helping people decide what jobs or internships are good choices what skills to target um, we can talk more about VocFit another time, maybe Dennis, if you want. Um, you know, the other things that come to mind, uh, one of the key predictors for, for positive post-secondary outcomes is uh, a student's level of self-determination skills. Um, you know, other language, you could think critical thinking, executive function type skills. So, um, Carrie Shogren out of the University of Kansas has the self-determination inventory. Um, and, and so that is a special education 
uh, frame of reference that is certainly applicable, right, to occupational therapy and, and vocational rehabilitation. Um, and so I would highly recommend uh, self-determination inventory. Um, the pediatric evaluation of disability inventory computer adapted te test or PDCAT um, is uh, appropriate for um, transition age youth and gives a, a pretty nice snapshot on uh, functional skills in self-care, social, and mobility domains. And those are all pretty quick, right? I mean, uh, in terms of the, the time and for the, the effort that you get in exchange for that time, how much, how long would each one of those assessments take, would you say? I think VocFit and PDCAT are probably both, and, and SDI are probably about a half an hour um, to get good data relevant. Uh, key language is a age-appropriate transition assessment. And so the post-secondary goals that are on an IEP uh, by law need to be based on age-appropriate transition assessment. And, and so the first thing I said is multiple assessments, mm -hmm. so not any one data point. Um, but a couple different things, um, you know, for, and, and of course there are lots of assessments, right? If you need to assess motor skills, you could use the bruning Sosaretsky test of motor proficiency. If you wanted to, if you need adaptive behavior, um, you know, you could use the Vineland adaptive behavior skills, right? And, and none of these are perfect tools, but I think together they provide us with a more holistic picture and can help us target someone's occupational needs for, for their age, right? Where they're at, the, as you were saying, the person, the environment, the occupation with current data. Um, and so then our challenge is to leverage that and move it towards intervention. Yeah, and we, we've been working, and I, I won't name a state, but one state in particular that is one of our favorite states, other than Ohio, which is you know where we, we, we met, um, so we've been working with one of the state's Department of Education, specifically uh, their uh, special ed director of transition services, uh, who's frustrated with teachers who are doing uh, an age appropriate transition assessment that they're just doing an observation. So I think um, it provides this, our ability as occupational therapists to provide an assessment and VocFit dot com uh, is a great one, but the other ones you mentioned um, are are wonderful as well. But really provide teachers that um, oftentimes haven't had much training uh, in really looking at at specifically that that connection between the person, the environment, and then the occupations that they're performing um, gets us a foot in the door and just using that age appropriate transition assessment language. And and I think it it then helps it helps us point what we're doing right? Our interventions, our services, it helps us point the team, the transition plan at the desired outcome, right? That indicator 14 of post-secondary education, employment, community living, participation. Right. And I, I think VocFit, uh, and this isn't a commercial for VocFit, VocFit.com, but um, it really is based on uh, U.S. Department of Labor data. And so it really is focused on employability skills um, and uh, really does a, a nice job of both matching people to employment, but also being able to measure change over time, which is something also that, that both vocational rehabilitation and our education partners um, 
really, uh, really are, are interested in. Um, so you've talked a little bit about assessment. Can you talk a bit about intervention and some of those things that, that occupational therapy practitioners can do both maybe in the, in the walls of the school and then outside the walls of the school? Yeah, so um, there's, there are certainly lots of things that we could do. Um, again, uh, I th think trying to base some of our decision-making off data, right? So then my brain goes to what are the evidence-based practices or predictors, right? What are the things that when we do them during high school and, and special education, they're, they're connected to positive outcomes after the fact? Um, so... Uh, a key one, uh, and, and maybe these aren't in any order of, of uh, importance, but a key is helping to facilitate parental involvement in the IEP and transition planning process uh, and uh, helping parents to set and maintain high expectations, um, both of their child, uh, the student with a disability, but also of the team. Um, our, our colleague Ann Kirby at the University of Utah uh, and I have published a little bit on parental expectations. And uh, ju just like uh, in children without disabilities, when parents have and maintain high expectations of their children, the outcomes tend to be better. And so one of the ways to, to facilitate that is through parental involvement in the IEP or transition planning process. There are a couple curricula or learning modules, say, that are focused on that. Um, uh, for therapists that are interested, um, I would direct them to the Zero Center for Learning at the University of Oklahoma, where you can find some of these materials freely available. Um, so looking at, at how we facilitate parents, uh, I would connect that back to using the law for advocacy, right? So meeting with parents and educating them about those those key components of the law, right? What is free and appropriate public education? What does that mean? Least restrictive environment, what does that mean? And how is it changing as your son or daughter are getting older? Um, and so there, there really are some pretty concrete things that we can try to do to, to bring uh, parents in. Uh, We've talked a little bit about self-determination, and so um, increasing the dose of self-determination, instruction, training, practice, skill building, um, the more opportunity that students have to uh, practice and, and develop those skill sets, uh, the better uh, the outcomes tend to be. Um, and fortunately, uh, there are a number of evidence-based curricula um, out of special education that target um, self-determination, right? So I, I mentioned Carrie Shogren's self-determination inventory as an assessment. Um, there's also um, structured curricula that go, go with those constructs and, and with that assessment. You know, I, I think that's a, another thing that we really encourage occupational therapists particularly um, to really look and see what what is out there currently that's evidence-based and um, to try to not uh, create your own wheel, but see if there's a wheel already that's out there. Um, so I know there's some some national transition centers that have some, some really good evidence-based practices that um, we will add to the supplemental information that you'll receive 
uh, as part of this podcast. You know, the, the other one, and we mentioned it briefly, the other key thing where OTs can focus their efforts uh, in an evidence-based way is that um, early uh, and frequent ex- experience with employment. So whether it's volunteering, being an intern, having that first job as a high school student, whatever those things are, more time and experience with employment um, is going to be linked to that outcome later on. Um, and, and so we, we see the best outcomes with students who, who did work in high school. And even pre-employment, there's actually pretty good evidence that shows that uh, involvement of any child in chores at home um, helps to, to have better long-term uh, employment outcomes for those, those children, which I try to remind my 18-year-old daughter on a regular basis, and she uh, doesn't always buy. Well, that's, that's part um, of the implication for OT is as we think about employment outcomes, how do we work towards those? How do we work towards employment skills and, and approximate that learning at younger ages, right? So you, you mentioned the correlation between chores and a, and a positive outcome, right? So that's one of the things OTs might focus on at the middle school, right? You know, connecting with that middle schooler on keeping their locker organized and their binder and their assignment notebook and going through their checklist of chores. Though Those are right on target for uh, the middle schooler and they're going to be tied to uh, success at high school and, and after. And so I wonder also then, what might we do with even younger kids, right? How, how can, uh, say, the kindergartner sitting at circle time with hands and feet to themselves, you know, on their carpet square, clean up after you're done, right? How can those types of skills uh, feel, feel more connected to the employment outcome? And, and so part of what I'm excited about in the transition space is the implication, I think, really is for, for all of school and, and for pediatrics of, of things we can do to help uh, improve that outcome. Great. So would you say overall you feel like occupational therapy is a good investment uh, for school districts to make in terms of, of um, encouraging OTs OT practitioners to work uh, with this age group? And if so, or if not, how do we, how are we able to demonstrate that? So it's a complicated question. I absolutely, I know that OTs are, are worth it. And, and at the, the simplest level, it's the early intervention argument, right? Uh, you know, the importance of intervening early and, and preventing spending down the line. Um, and, and so I do uh, believe that, um, say, investment in OT, it would be a better use of resources. OT during the school years would be a better use of resources than support services for a lifetime after uh, after someone exits the schools. The catch is that um, there are different stakeholders, right? And, and the school's responsibility really is just up until 21 or 22. And uh, they don't necessarily see or get the benefit of that investment. Now, societally, I think we do, um, but but it's hard to um, justify, say, additional or increased investment when the outcome isn't actually measured or, or is just minimally measured 
uh, by the school districts in something like indicator 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it is that, I think it's the early intervention argument and, um, talking, uh, about the, the costs of it's mm-hmm. important for us to say, keep OT on the IEP. Now we're going to keep OT on in middle school and high school because, um, this is an opportunity for us to practice and refine skills and that's going to lead towards the positive outcome. Just tell you a quick success story. We, we just started some new programs in Florida in this last year. And so one of the, our rehab partners, um, so these are for adults, um, an adult program. So working with uh, post high school um, interns within the project search model, but they, they actually hired an OT um, based on hearing you and I present this last summer. And um, so after they hired the OT, they, they called and said, so now what do we do? So it was, it was kind of a fun uh, phone call to get to, that we're, we're making some dents uh, in terms of increasing OT's involvement um, with this, with this age group and in the work we're trying to do. Um, and so how would you suggest we talk with OTs that maybe OT practitioners didn't, aren't really interested in working with this age group? Um, is there, do you have advice on how to approach that? Uh, well, so one of the f- things I talk to students about, um, and it's part of the history of our profession, right, is the shift of OT practice from mental health settings and mental health institutions into public schools, right, with deinstitutionalization, the Mental Health Act. Um, th- this is a, a process that has been uh, 50 plus years uh, in the making. Um, and uh, something that happened, right? The profession lost its footprint. You know, about, about half of OTs were working in, in institutional or mental health settings after World War II. Um, and uh, that's not the case anymore, right? Only about two or 3% of OTs are working in mental health. And so one of the things I talk to students about is even if you're, you're not interested in pediatrics or working in the schools, this piece of practice is important and relevant for the whole profession. And so we need you to be an advocate and a steward of, of the profession and, and this, this mechanism that, that we provide service to the public. Um, that's not a perfect solution. Um, but, but I do think it connects, say, with the, the student who wants to, uh, you know, who isn't interested in peds. They want to go into hand therapy or, or something very different. Um, yeah, and continued advocacy. You know, that in my experience, or at least to date, I haven't encountered a silver bullet that is going to solve the problem for us. And, and so I think it, we need a, a multi-factored approach and sustained effort and and like you said, we're starting to see increased um, work, you know, new employment in the space, more presentation, more publication. And I, and I think it isn't everybody's cup of tea, and that's okay. You know, you don't want me in a NICU. Uh, but, um, you know, I think that especially when there are school districts that have a number of OTs, then maybe one or two of them kind of have a real interest in this area. And then they could they could go into the high school and figure out how to get high school kids to, um, you know, 
I know a, a friend of ours that's a, a an OT in the high school um, talks about having like a secret code uh, when she's seeing kids there, so that they the the student doesn't know that that they're in in therapy. Um, so thanks, Andy. Just uh, maybe a, a parting advice for uh, an, an occupational therapist that's interested in uh, starting down this path to work with transition age youth um, that you would um, kind of advise that they do to, to kind of dip their foot maybe in the water a little bit and, and uh, start working with transition age uh, students in, in the space. The first thing I would say is uh, any contributions you make to uh, these populations, to uh, the profession in this space are valuable contributions right? Um, they're, they're additions to what, what is our capacity. Um, I, I really do think this a shift of perspective or, or at least an orientation to those post-secondary outcomes is really important. Um, once a therapist understands what those post-secondary outcomes, what the tracks look like, I think then you can start to think about how does the program, the IEP, connect to that target. Um, and, and in doing that, uh, I uh, oftentimes found that I didn't think the program was all that connected to the target. And so I think that's a, a clear and discreet place where an OT can make a contribution to transition planning. What's the post-secondary target? What's the plan? And are they aligned like we think they're aligned? Um, I, I suppose that really is that's the connection between indicator 13 and 14. Um, and, and bringing that perspective, the person environment occupation to that analysis really is an opportunity and, and is something different than the other members of the team uh, offer. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Andy Persh, uh, the director of the Transition Employment and Technology Laboratory at Colorado State University, uh, we really thank you for your time and for your expertise. Uh, and if you need to get a hold of Andy or myself, you can go to vocefit.com and uh, you can uh, find an email contact there for us. So thanks so much. We really appreciate your time and hope you and everybody else has a great day.